Before we start, a message from friend of the podcast, Royfield Brown. As America prepares its presidential election on November the 3rd, we look at the life of a president who 40 years ago was called a dangerous extremist, who wanted to put nuclear weapons in space and who proposed large tax and spending cuts hoping to destroy the power of Washington. We wouldn't get a uniform report of the scrubs. Why? Because I think you'd make a football player. I doubt it. Try it anyway. All right, if you insist. Now, wait a minute. What's your name? Kip. George Kip. Raised in the small towns of Illinois, he was the actor who changed America, helped bring down the Berlin Wall, and became a lion of the right. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Listen to part one of Ronald Reagan, from Illinois to California on 10 American Presidents, from Royfield Brown and the author of Reagan, American icon Ewan Morgan. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, a cast, and wherever else you get your podcasts. to No Man's Land podcast, we are here today to discuss science and its role in politics. We've had a year dominated by COVID-19, and it has meant that science and debates about science have taken an unusually prominent role in politics. That, of course, is not even to mention climate change, plus other related issues to do with science, such as uh, whether universities have become centres of left-wing bias and cancel culture. To help us unpick the relationship between politics and science, we are joined by Dr. Corey Clark, Dr. Bo Wingard. Welcome, Corey. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Bo. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Um, could you just introduce yourselves for our listeners? Corey, you're coming back. This is your first return to the podcast. So do you want to introduce yourself just again first, and then we'll come on to you, Bo? Sure. Um, I am a social psychologist by training. I was formerly an assistant professor of social psychology at Durham University in the UK. I think that's the position I was in last time I was on the podcast. Um, And now I'm a visiting scholar at University of Pennsylvania, still in psychology. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Bye. I am also a social psychologist by training and a exiled academic (laughs) is now working on a book or doing research for a book on human nature and conservatism. Excellent. Thank you both very much. Okay. So there's two elements to all of this. There's one is firstly, is whether science is becoming more political. And the second is about how politicians are or aren't using science. Um, so first of all, let's start off with the pol- politicisation of science. Steve, do you want to start us off? Why is it that science seems to have had more of an impact on politics recently? Is it just COVID? Is it COVID and climate change? Uh, um, yeah, hello. And I always forget to say hello at the beginning of these podcasts because I'm normally here sort of lurking. Um, uh, I think your um, sort of slip of the tongue a minute, a minute ago, Martin, was the right one, actually, because I, my theory, at least, is that polarisation politically has had a, quite a lot to do with the fact that science now, or debates about science now, seem so 
so fraught. So it seems like, um, certainly as an observer, that people uh, agree more vehemently on everything now for a variety of reasons. Um, but that includes kind of basic facts and scientific facts, and science seems to get uh, contested in a way that I, I don't remember that it used to be going back 10, 15 years. Um, on climate change, I guess that's the first issue that, that where a big sort of scientific finding um, became so prominently political. Uh, and it, I guess it's an issue that seemed to, where the solutions are perceived to point left wing. I'm not sure that's always true, but that's the perception. Uh, and certainly sections of the right have really opposed it and, and sort of questioned the science. So clearly that's had a role in politicizing science. Um, I guess COVID is the first time you've had an issue that's not just a big issue, but is the big issue of the, the sort of time or sunny of the year that, that has had science at the absolute centre of it. So uh, I guess it's been on the news recently, um, exacerbating all the things that maybe I started with around polarisation, making science um, more political. There's just one thing I wanted to pick up on that and about whether it's more of a sort of an open question. You mentioned about how climate change seems to point more left. I assume that you mean from that towards state intervention and away from um, a sort of laissez-faire approach to sort of economy and politics. But is there any particular reason why action on climate change should be inherently left? It could be protecting communities, um, it could be in the, the expansion markets, but I suppose to, to all of you, do you think what or why do you think it is that the left has become more associated with action on climate change and the right has tended to be more sceptical? Well, when, I, when I said it, I think I had in mind what, what you just referred to, Martin, is that um, solutions tend to uh, suggest big state intervention, think Green New Deal, or regulations such as you know, environmental regulations, um, but it'll be interesting to know what others think. Yeah. I mean, oh, sorry. Oh, oh um, just to chime in. I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm definitely not an expert on climate change or the history of climate change, but it does seem as though because it, it suggests some sort of regulation of the economy and some kinds of top-down solutions, especially in the United States where the conservative party tends to lean more libertarian, that is sort of off-putting to them. So I think that's why it has become such a polarized issue. In some ways, some of these things might be arbitrary. So when you look at the clusters of beliefs that go together in the United States, you get, for example, um, a promotion of gun rights goes with a promotion of um, pro-life policies. And it's not clear to me that those two positions would go together in any sort of coherent or or sort of logical way. I, I think it just kind of like happens to be the case that these two issues are a part of a a conservative coalition. And therefore, if you join the coalition because, let's say, you care about uh, pro-life, you tend just to absorb the other beliefs. And so they get connected. So, So I don't think there has to be anything necessarily logical about what position becomes associated with what ideology. Although in the case of climate change, I do think there's a sort of logic about it because conservatives, especially in the United States, are generally skeptical of government policy intervention in the economy. 
My, my perception, granted, I've only been, I haven't been around that long. Um, but my perception is that science probably has always been sort of politicized whenever it could be politicized and that that was happening before climate change became this big issue. Um, and it's just now that the sciences, I think, approach so many more topics that can be relevant to political issues. So the social sciences, um, I'm not sure exactly when this, you can say the social sciences were born, but that has so much significance to political issues. And so it kind of happens inevitably. Um, but I think, I think with COVID, and this is related to Bo's point, is that, in my perception, probably became politicized because of Trump's initial reactions to the, to the whole COVID situation. And so it became a political issue sort of immediately, and at least in the U.S., um, now you have it's a conservative position to call COVID a hoax. Um, that's something that some people actually believe. Um, and I suspect it sort of happened ar- arbitrarily. It wasn't necessarily the case that conservatives would be less concerned for it, but that, that could be wrong. Well, to, to defend conservatives just a bit, I don't think that that's like the main, <laughs> No, main, I'm not saying it's a mainstream vote. Uh, you do get a small uh, pool of what you would call very MAGA-type people, you know. Uh, I wouldn't consider those people conservatives, but yes, they, they are very skeptical of the COVID. And I, I agree. I think a lot of it has to do with Trump's initial response, although... If you look at the polling on COVID, at least in the United States, what you find is that there's a lot more agreement than you tend to get from, say, Twitter or other social media. So I think if you look at, say, mask mandates, they're overwhelmingly popular here. Um, What you get is people broadcasting quite loudly the extremes probably on both sides. so it is a bit polarized, but I think actually it's less polarized. People don't like how the Trump administration's handled it, and they generally seem to favor mask mandates. When you get more into the lockdown territory, I think that probably legitimately is more polarized. And also, just to know, I completely agree with what Corey said about the um, the history of politiciz- politicization of science. I think, yeah, it's... As soon as science became uh, something with social gravitas, it was politicized because it was so important to say, well, science supports X, Y, or Z for either, well, in, in this country, for either political party or for whatever ideology a person was promoting. So if you look at Marxism, right, one of the things the Marxists really liked to do is say, our ideology is based solely on science. This is a scientific ideology, right? <laughs> I mean, they were very obsessed with the idea that we're not these, you know, woolly-headed socialists who aren't looking at these things scientifically. We're based on rigorous science. So I think that's been the case for as long as science has been around. It's probably worth saying that um, I think the public opinion is quite similar here to the U.S. in terms of support for things like masks and lockdown measures. Um, but where, what I think is interesting about comparing COVID and climate change, um, from my understanding, and I'm not an expert in either of the areas, um, but from following climate evidence over like decades, it seems that there's huge agreement around a lot of the science there. Whereas COVID, while there's definitely agreement on some bits, it, it seems that people politically treat it as though there's a consensus where actually 
I suspect we just don't know very much um, mm-hmm. about a lot of these things. So it took us, um, people were advocating masks. I think before there was really good evidence for masks um, mm-hmm. being worn. And even like, uh, I know in the UK, some of the lockdown debate, particularly some of the details of it, people are very vehemently critical of people who question it. But often, sometimes those people are sort of slightly crazy, slightly um, alternative view people. But often it's quite mainstream scientists who have different views. Um, mm-hmm. And we seem to treat it in the same way as scientists who deny climate change, of which there are no, that I know, credible ones. Um, so it seems like we're treating the debate the same way with the science, from my understanding, which is vastly incomplete. Uh, but um, we're treating the same way with the science seems like it's not the same. I think that's a very good point, and in part because climate change is obviously an established science. It's recordable, sorry, observable sort of data sets over many, many, many years, decades, centuries. Whereas with COVID, we've got seven months. You know, it's an awfully big ask to the scientific community to know all there is to know about something that didn't really exist or didn't at all perhaps exist a year ago. So I would just, in the sort of, in the defence of so, um, this lack of scientific consensus, it is perhaps a big ask to have reached a settled view within such a short time. Uh, yeah, adding to that, I agree with what Steve said, and I think I, I have been disappointed to see this we listen to the science, the science X, Y, or Z, acting as though there is more certainty about these things than there really is. And I think that's really dangerous because when you do that and then you change your mind or just the evidence suggests a different theory, which happens all the time in science, then you undermine science for the public because you know, we, I suppose idea, some ideal world, people would read the evidence carefully and they would come to their own conclusions, but that's just not realistic. So what we have to do is create an environment in which people can more or less trust experts, right? Because, you know, they're just going to read the paper and see a story and experts say wear masks or don't wear masks and they're going to be like, okay. So anytime you undermine that, I think that's a problem. And that's what excessive certainty does. And remember, in the United States, I don't remember, uh, I don't know what this was like in in England or in Europe more broadly, but in the United States, they said, don't worry about masks very early on, right? Don't wear them. It's not going to help you. And then they quickly changed on that. And then pretty soon masks became this, Rod Dreher calls it a condensed signal. That is to say, it's a condensed symbol, excuse me. That is to say, it's something that like people get really worked up about because it's about more than just the thing. So it's not just about masks. It's about your attitude towards like bureaucratic elite experts, et cetera. So people get really worked up about this. I would rather people just said, look, the evidence is, it's not clear, but it looks as though masks probably help a little bit. It's not going to keep you safe for sure. We don't even, we don't know for sure what it does, but the costs of wearing a mask are very low. So if there's evidence that it might reduce transmission by say 20%, 
then it's probably worth wearing it. But we, what we shouldn't do is uh, suggest more confidence than we actually have because these things are – we don't even know exactly how it's transmitted, right? There's still debate about whether it's aerosolized, right? So it's, these things are just very complicated, and I wish that uh, scientists and, and the elite media would be more honest about the degree of uncertainty so that, that we don't undermine confidence in experts. Yeah, I think I think people just have a really hard time thinking of science as a process rather than delivering sort of final conclusions on things. So when you say like, oh, scientists think masks don't help, and then you say scientists think masks do help, that's not necessarily a failure of science, but rather a sign of progress. And I think people just don't, they don't see evidence that way. They don't see it as building more knowledge rather they think it's like designed to come to a particular conclusion so we can know for sure what is right. Um, and with COVID, I think a big part of the problem is just like, we don't know what counterfactual realities would be if Trump had enacted different policies, what would have happened. Um, and so it just leaves a lot of room for people to speculate about whether certain decisions were the right ones. Um, because nobody can really know what what would have been a better decision because we can't go back and, and, and try an alternative. Right. And then on top of that, you have a Democratic Party that's very excited to use the virus and the, the pandemic as evidence of the Trump administration's complete incompetence. And yeah. Trump is particular. I mean, Whatever the policies, and I, I, you know, I don't think the policies would have done a lot one way or the other, but whatever one thinks about that, certainly Trump is not particularly good at empathizing with people or talking about this in a way that gives people confidence. So I think it's easy to make it seem as though he's incredibly incompetent, and if we had just listened to the scientist more, we would have 50% fewer cases or something, which... I'm very skeptical about that. But as Corey said, we, we can't run the counterfactual, so it's really hard to know. This, to me, seems like quite a good time to to, to broaden it out into talking about the, the wider interaction between politics and science. So there is a feeling, well, it could be fair, both, I think, in the, here in the UK, I think probably in the US as well, at least that is the perception, certainly I have, that the left, perhaps by being out of power, have said or made more of a, um, a political point of saying that they follow the science, perhaps more so than those on the right. Now, I think we do have to perhaps contextualise this in terms of what commentators say and versus what the public say. So the um, the polling over here is certainly that the public are supportive of lockdown measures, supportive of, sort of masks and basically almost blank check of, like, we support action being taken. But then you do get sort of loud but minority of people who are very sceptical about action, whether that's looking towards... Sweden, whether that's looking towards, you know, not wearing masks, describing them as face nappies and all of these sorts of things. So 
why do you think that the left have made, and indeed I've seen Biden, um, part of his political messaging is that I will follow the science, I will listen to the scientists. Trump doesn't listen to the science, I would listen to the science. Why do you think that that um, schism, that sort of polarisation of science between the left and right approaches to it, what, why do you think that's come up and what's sort of behind it? I realise there's a lot in there, so whoever wants to... Uh, no, it's to a, sort of, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I think, I don't think this is the whole story, but I think this is a lot of it. There's a division between the sort of populace, so let's think of the Trump base, we'll call, you know, nationalist, populist, or whatever, and the rest of people, but especially Democrats. There's there's a division there in attitude toward experts in general. And among populists, there is just a skepticism of experts, perhaps even uh, an enmity toward experts. And I think that plays into this, the, the COVID situation, because people see, say, Dr. Fauci or other doctors talking about COVID as these remote bureaucratic experts. And populists, people who sympathize with that, tend to view them skeptically and they don't like them. And I think Trump sees that, he senses that, and he likes to play into it a bit. So if you look at his discourse about masks, for example, it has changed. It has, once in a while, he'll be very, uh, you know, we should wear masks, and he even had pictures of him wearing them. But then he likes to go on rants about how terrible they are and why would he listen to this idiot Fauci? I think he called him an idiot in one piece that was released just recently. Um, and I think that's because of the attitude toward experts, the skepticism toward experts. And I, it's a really unfortunate and dangerous thing because experts are obviously really important, but... I sympathize a bit because there really is this, uh, there's this attitude that you get on the left, as you can see, as you said, I think with Biden, like I'll listen to the scientist as if scientists can tell you what you should do on social policy, right? And that's not what science does. Science is a process for getting at the truth it doesn't tell you what kinds of trade-offs you should take, right? So even if we knew everything about COVID, which we, of course, don't, but even if we did, we would, we'd still have difficult decisions to make about whether we should make these trade-offs. Is it worth it to have a lockdown if it tanks your economy, but it you know, decreases spread by 50% or something. Well, we don't know. And there's no quote-unquote scientific way of figuring that out. Yeah, I'll add on to that. My my perception is that it was probably a very long process where science has become more of a liberal thing over time. Um, I don't know when it would have, would have started, but science was causing problems for religion um, early on. And religion is associated with conservatism in the U.S. and I think probably multiple other countries as well. Is that true? I should probably know that. No one else knows that. I think there's (laughs) certainly similar um, 
similar sort of patterns over here, I would say. Yeah. Um, but what's also happened too, there have been analyses of um, what do scientists look like in academia and how have they become more politically slanted uh, over time. So if you look back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it doesn't seem that you had quite as much political homogeneity as you have now, where um, in the social sciences, ac- across different disciplines, you're looking at like 90% plus of people identifying as liberal. And I don't think that was the case, you know, a few, a few decades ago. So it's becoming more liberal over time. Um, and what happens then is you kind of have a bit of a hostile environment toward conservatives, which gives conservatives more justification to be skeptical of science, um, and that's the the big problem that I see is that we want people in general to be pro-science, to think that that's the best way of approaching truth. And liberals, I think, are kind of excited about the, the fact that they're the, the pro-science group. They're the group that knows the science. They're, they're more right about things and um, they use science in their, polis- their policies and conservatives don't. Um, and that alienates conservatives and gives them all the more reason to to not trust scientists anymore. Um, so I think it's probably been a sort of feedback loop of scientists becoming more liberal um, and then science being more associated with liberals and then pushing conservatives away more. Um, and now we're kind of in the situation where we're in now where it's just the, the, the word science itself has become a politicized issue. Is there a demographic element to all of this, do you think, that given across, certainly across the UK, and I think the same um, phenomenon is present in America, given that greater amounts of formal education is associated with more liberal attitudes on average, Mm -hmm. and to be a top scientist requires many years of formal education, do you think that scientists just look like people who are more on the liberal left? I take—I mean that in a European sense rather than in the American sense. But given that they probably look more like each other, that they probably went through school, university together, they probably, I don't know, played tennis together, not necessarily individuals, but as a an average across society. Do you think that people on the liberal left, by being more highly educated in a a, education institutional sense, and then scientists have obviously spent many years sort of in and around universities, do you think that there's just a, these people just look like me, sound like me, do the same things that I do? Do you think that's a factor in it as well, Brett? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's so. It's really complicated to get at causality, right? So, one question would be: Is there a direct causal link between years of education and how liberal you are? Does the education itself cause people to become more liberal, or is it just that people with certain personalities go through college, you know, and so they get X amount of education? And they're also liberal. I suspect that there's a, it's a combination of things, but it is definitely the case that 
the Democratic coalition in the United States is much more educated now than the Republican coalition. And that is um, changing, actually. I mean, Trump sort of moved that farther than it already was, or, or I guess you could say accelerated that trend. And I think that makes a lot of sense that there's just this sort of uh, these, I guess you could call them cosmopolitans. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Just people who have, they're more educated. They're what David Goodhart would call um, uh, anywhere. Anyways. Exactly. exactly. And yeah, there's definitely something to that. I had a thought. Um, it's it go, This goes back to some degree a long way. To, I mean, this illustrates a difficulty with the language we have about politics because there's small L liberal, which is actually in some sense closer to libertarianism or, or, I mean, not necessarily libertarianism, but refers to rule of law, individualism, et cetera. And then there's capital L liberal, which is really more of a progressive in some sense, what we would call a progressive in the United States. And there actually was a movement I don't know about Europe exactly, but in the United States, we had a progressive era, say from, I don't know, 1880 to uh, World War One, And one of the, the sort of driving or animating features of the progressive era was this belief that you could use science to change social policy and that the governments could use science to shape society for the better. And so this this goes a long way back, this, this connection between progressives and science and using the government to implement policies that are better for society. Of course, the problem is that a lot of the science is biased by these sacred values, so you're not getting... Uh, what you would say, I don't know, pure science or whatever. You're not getting unvarnished science. The science itself, even the process of science, is sort of corrupted by this, which causes problems. And then that increases the skepticism that you get from the more populist coalition, conservative, whatever you want to call it. They become more skeptical of it because it just so happens to support policies that progressives prefer. And I think they're right to be a little bit, uh, I don't know, skeptical and alienated by that. Yeah, that's my fear that the the gap will just continue to grow because exactly the people on the right now have legitimate reasons to be sort of skeptical of higher education in general. Um, I like to run the thought experiment, like what would the average liberal professor think about sending his children to university if they knew that 95% of their professors would be Trump voters. Like that wouldn't be, uh, that, that wouldn't be something they'd be very excited about. So when you have the reverse happening, um, it just, it just makes me fear that, you know, five, 10, 15 years from now, the education gap, it, higher education might be something that really only more progressive people even want to do. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's such a such a good point. I just wanted to to touch on what Bo said. That so we had through movements like the, the Fabians in the UK, which were very science based, trying to um, sort of bring about scientific and social progress. Now, the great irony of 
groups such as the the Fabians, who were influential in the early Labour Party, this, and the, the setting up of the London School of Economics, which is exactly that the the, the temple was set up as that attempt to sort of realise social progress through scientific means across social sciences and economic sciences. And um, the great irony being that they were massive eugenicists and uh, and racists, uh, as we would understand them them now. Also, there is very much over here we've seen, and especially with uh, Boris Johnson's Conservatives and their... um, Sort of big victory in the last general election. But I think it's something that's been going on for quite a long time over, certainly in the UK and I think mainland Europe as well, which is that people without degrees have been moving towards the centre-right or further-right populist parties mm-hmm. and the left, certainly so I'm a Labour Party member, and the Labour Party basically made up almost overwhelmingly of well-off people with degrees, the sort of metropolitan types, and there's been an increasing schism over years. Now, the Labour Party used to be successful as a coalition between the sort of the well-off, but politically, uh, sort of ideologically liberal, the, the Fabians, like, often they were sort of very well-off people, and the sort of traditional many working classes now... The, that coalition has weakened enormously and in some cases has broken down so that a lot of Labour seats have fallen to the Conservatives and a lot of the traditional Labour voters have gone over to the Conservatives and they tend to be white working class, people without degrees. And actually, Corey, that is a very, uh, it's a very good point that you make and a very worrying thing that as um, university education becomes politicised in that way, that people think, well, I don't want my kids to go and be told that they're wrong, that they're stupid, that what they believe, what their parents believe, you know, is wrong. And I can understand why people would resist that sort of um, that sort of move. But I did just want to, to change tack very slightly in talking about the politics and how we how we talk about the politics around science. So is there, as I think, there is a problem? And should we want our politicians instead to be more open about the uncertainties and the trade-offs? And rather than saying, the the science says X, therefore we should do it, say, the science says certain things, but we are the politicians, we make the decisions, and my decision is... That's what I think we should do. So what what are your views collectively, all three of you, on all of the things that I've just said? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in um, for a bit. I, I, think, I think it's hard to, to argue against what you've said, Martin, in the sense that, um, yeah, we want politicians to do that. I just think it's incredibly hard in the kind of environment we have now, partly because a lot of our politicians maybe lack... Um, I think I'm thinking of our Prime Minister and the President perhaps lack the articulateness to do so. I can imagine President Obama would be able to do it much better, for example. Um, but also, like, we live in a sort of, like, five-second clip social media kind of Twitter world where it's pretty hard to have that, that nuance, I think. So even I think even if you had, like, really stellar politicians, they'd struggle, I think, in 2020 to 
to sort of have the space to do it. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm being too pessimistic. No, I think it's quite a debate in the UK that Keir Starmer has said that the science, the science says we should have a, a circuit break. And I just wonder whether it might be more honest if the response to that was we can have it or we cannot have it, but we are the ones taking the decisions. You know, the, the elected leaders should be the ones taking the decisions. And this is our decision. I suppose politicians have often tried to sort of outsource the blame to someone else. But I wonder if they might actually buy themselves a bit more time by trying to be that much more honest with people. I think it would be much better to do that because you would at least, uh, I'm hopeful that you would abate the sort of tension about science and the politicization. So like I give you an example, I, I try to compare it to say a mechanic. So you take your car to the mechanic and your mechanic tells you, let's say you have X, Y, or Z wrong with your car and it's going to cost $3,000. The mechanic doesn't tell you whether you should do that or not, right? That's a difficult question that you have to answer. Is my car worth more than that? You know, do I have money in the bank to pay for this, et cetera? That's the way I think we should think about the science here is, okay, the science can tell you X, Y, or Z is wrong or X, Y, or Z is causing this, but it can't tell you what decision to make about it. However, as Steve said, I, I I agree with his assessment. I'm a, a terrible pessimist about this. You know, it's just, I, I wish that you could talk about complicated trade-offs and make the point that, look, like the science can tell us information about the world, but ultimately we have to make these decisions and this is the decision we're making. I don't think that that's actually something that would, uh, uh, so let's say you had Obama. We had Obama for eight years, and the country became even more polarized, and the science became more politicized. <laughs> so it, I don't think it matters, unfortunately. I think you have to start teaching that stuff very early, teaching the distinction between science and values or science and policy, and we do a terrible job of that here and even if we did start teaching that early, I, I don't expect any miracles, of course, but at least a little bit. We should move in that direction, but right now it's very hard and I don't see it happening anytime soon. I, I suspect we, the politicians are the way they are because we want them that way, right? Because we vote for them. So I think people just don't, they want someone who's probably more certain and who treats things more black and white and who is a really strong defender of whatever the party's position is on the issue um, and not willing to admit, hey, there are actually some downsides to this policy, but we're going to push it through anyway for these reasons. We think it's justified. Of course, it's a difficult problem. I just don't know if that's going to inspire people to vote for a candidate, like um, inspire people to vote for that candidate because they probably wouldn't be seen as being, maybe they'd be seen as being like too risky. They're not as committed to the party as you would want them to be. Um, so yeah, pe the... people need to want it and they need to vote for people like that. And that just doesn't seem to be happening. Right. There's the evergreen lines from the WB8's poem, you know, the, 
the the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I think that's just mm-hmm. kind of always true <laughs> that epistemic humility leads to a lack of conviction to some degree. You know, you're just not as certain about things. So it, it's more complicated. And so let's say, say your attitude toward immigration is, look, it's a really complicated uh, situation. We have to weigh the costs and benefits, the, the benefits to the people who come here, the cost to cultural cohesion, you know. Okay, well, if I say that, and I'm a, a politician, people who want to vote for me, they don't know if I'm going to stick it out, because what if I change my mind with the evidence, and they don't want to change their minds? So as Corey said, it's just, it's a weak signal of tribal loyalty, mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that's a huge problem and I'm not, I'm very pessimistic about that. I don't know how, there's no solution to the problem. You know, excessive certainty is always going to probably be incentivized, but to the extent that there is a solution, social media is definitely working in the opposite direction, right? <laughs> right. So like I think of, we're paddling a boat upstream against a current that's going faster and faster because of say Twitter and Facebook. I don't pay attention to Facebook, but I can see it on Twitter because of Twitter. Um, and I don't, I don't know what one does about that. Well, thanks, but I'm going to listen to this back when we look at some particular episode of the podcast and we haven't got as many listeners as we wanted. And I'll say, well, I can invoke <laughs> Bo quoting Yates. That way. <laughs> so, so we've got because we've got an eye on the time. Let's move on to to bias in academia. So there is another side to all of this, and that's the side of those who actually work in and around science. So, can you talk about how polarized politics affects scientists and universities themselves? And Bo, would you like to lead by telling us about your personal experience? Uh, sure. So I'll just tell my story. Hopefully I can put it in a two minute abbreviated form. Um, I became interested in human variation, differences between human groups when I was in grad school. And I pursued it a little bit, but not too much because it is one of the great taboos in academia. It was difficult for me to get a job probably partially at least because of that. I also studied um, liberal bias, and that's another thing that probably didn't help me, but I did manage to get a job at a small college in Ohio. And I, my first year was fine. My reviews were great. My teaching reviews are good. And then my second year, sometime in October, I gave a speech at the University of Alabama, which is a large research college here. Um, university, excuse me. And the topic was human variation. I, you know, I sent my PowerPoints to the person who invited me. He said they look great. So everything was cool. And then I got there and everything was fine for a day. But the second day, some professor had stumbled upon a site called Rat Wiki or Rational Wiki, which is just this slanderous sort of political hit job site that pretends to be objective and it said a lot of nasty things about me. And so the professors got angry about this and they would, they refused to even meet with me, which I thought was just, I mean, really there's no other word than pathetic for it. And um, so I had a talk that night. There was 
there was some talk about that getting canceled, but they didn't cancel it. A lot of people actually ended up showing up, but they all hated me. So they hated me from the get-go. Um, you know, when they, when I got to the question section, they just asked me you know, just ludicrous questions and accused me of being a racist, etc. It was pretty, uh, it wasn't pleasant. Uh, they ended up writing an article about it for the paper in Alabama, the the university paper. Somebody sent that to my bosses. You know, my bosses started getting angry with me. I had a meeting with them. That one went like sort of okay. But then this pseudonymous troll started emailing my bosses, sending links to articles I had written saying that I supported eugenics, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, stuff that wasn't even true. I had another meeting at this other meeting, again, nothing was said about the possibility of my getting fired. And because I had, I had a very good publishing record, my teaching reviews were good. I, I mean, I, I sort of worried about the eventuality because I knew you know, the way politics works in academia. But I, I didn't think it was going to happen because after the meeting, you know, nothing was said there about my getting fired. So I, was, I felt a little better after it. And then, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, uh, my provost told me that. I was fired. So that's, that's that. It was an unpleasant situation for, for approximately a year. Um, so you were, really, you were fired because, not because your work was in any way. Yeah, no. And, of, and in fact, I can say this. Correct. But yeah. because of sort of anonymous online reactions to it. Yes. And, and I can say this now because I'm, I, I have no association with the school and I don't, you know, whatever. Um, everybody in my department voted or, or said that I should not be fired. So this was a decision that happened from the top down. Probably the president was the one who made this decision. So it was not based on my competence, clearly, or, you know, anything about that. It was based on, it was a political decision. Um, it was about what I chose to study and write about. So I think let's just talk about this. We, we have, I think here, an issue of uh, a case study in cancel culture, which is said to have perhaps originated in universities. So I'm sure that you I can guess your answer to this, but is there a, a freedom of speech issue here or in general, is that overplayed? And I'd like to bring in Corey as well. I, I obviously got your take, Bo, but you know, you're very welcome to come in on this as well. But I'd just like to throw it open on the issue of cancel culture. Uh, I'm going to answer just quickly for a second and then I'll pass it to Corey because Corey and I used to argue about this. I used to tell her, you know, this topic is, you can't, you can't publish on it. You, you will get annihilated by these people in academia. And she would say, ah, you know, it's not that bad. Maybe this, maybe that. And then stuff happened over the past year. I think she has probably changed her mind. But I would say, <laughs> I'll just say, I think it's worse than people think. I mean, I am very pessimistic about it. It's so bad that you can't even talk about easily available data without getting in trouble. And it's so bad that there's sort of like this underground network of professors. I know many of them, I'm sure Corey does, who basically agree with me, or if they don't agree with me, they at least think I should, you know, they think that it's a good debate that we should be having. 
but they're terrified to say it publicly. And we can see why they are because I got fired. Noah Carl got fired. I know people who can't get jobs, et cetera. It is really treacherous. And it's, it's, it just stifles conversation about race or sex, uh, you know, trans issues, uh, cultural preservation, all of these kinds of topics are just essentially verboten in academia now. You know, the social sciences are especially bad. I don't know, chemistry and physics, politics probably aren't as prominent. But yeah, it's, it's really bad. And there's definitely, and to be clear, the thing with cancel culture, it's not about the people who have been canceled necessarily. Because each person who gets canceled silences probably 50 to 100 other people, right? All it takes is one person to get fired, and you're you're sort of like the scarecrow out there terrifying all of the other people. You're the person hanging in the public square that is supposed to deter the other people, and it it's a good deterrent because most people can't afford to lose their job. Yeah, so, my my views. Um. Yeah, I, I've sort of changed my views on this issue many times recently. Um, I, I don't have particular concern with free speech per se. My real concern is with free inquiry. Like I want scholars to be able to study topics and write what they find and share data. I don't think there should be any data that you can share that would get you um, fired or even that would make you sort of be ostracized from the community, even if you're not fired, such that people just make assumptions that you're a bad person. Your colleagues don't want to be associated with you. They don't want to publish with you. Um, So that's really what I'm concerned with. Um, I'm not so much concerned if like a professor says something really nasty that's not related to research um, and they get fired for that. That seems like a, a different issue to me. Um, but yeah, to, to Bo's point, I think the problem, I'm not sure how many people have been fired like Bo in the way Bo was fired. And when there was clearly no way it could have been justified by saying, Hey, you're, you weren't, you weren't doing what we asked you to do. Your, your students were complaining about you. There was nothing they could point to, to justify that decision. I suspect he's a pretty rare case. But the problem, as Bo pointed out, is it makes other people who think, who believe in the idea of free inquiry, that we should be pursuing true and accurate information, um, and we shouldn't morally punish people for for pursuing truth. Um, it makes those people afraid to to do that. Um, to study the controversial topics that I think controversial topics need to be studied. We need to get better information. Um, and then you hope that when you get better information, eventually they can be not controversial anymore. We don't, we're not forced to make any decisions based on good information. Um, so yeah, that said, I don't know how much worse academia is than any other kind of organization or institution. I think a big problem I see now is just the power of social media and especially Twitter, probably Facebook too. Um, any organization that can be tweeted about is 
if they're if if the if, if, the, if the mob puts pressure on them and says you have this person working at your organization and they said X or they did X, they hold this, this horrible view that organization is going to feel pressure to fire that person. And a lot of the time they probably will. Um, so I do see it as a problem in academia. I see it as a problem in academia mainly because that's, uh, an institution that should be promoting free inquiry, whereas other institutions, that's not their thing. Walmart, whatever, um, some other kind of company, Starbucks, I don't know. Um, that's not their thing, but I do just think it's a, it's a problem in general, um, with, with all organizations where we've given so much power to people on social media to, to force institutions to make decisions about other people's jobs. Um, and that's like the bigger problem that I see, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, to add to that just for a moment, um, I, I agree that academia is not worse than other institutions. In fact, it's probably quite a it's bit probably better. better. Yeah. Right. The problem is academia should be, and it presents itself as this sort of sequestered territory in which people explore controversial ideas to arrive at the truth through good faith, rational debate. Now, that debate can, of course, get vehement and people can get pretty excited and enthusiastic, whatever. But what they don't do is suppress perfectly reasonable hypotheses and ideas and fire the people who are trying to promulgate them or even not even promulgate them, just saying this makes sense. Here's a hypothesis that seems more likely than other hypotheses. That, I think, is the serious um, problem. And again, as we were talking about earlier, this leads to a right-wing backlash against university culture in general and then against educated elites and science because they are correct to know that there's an incredible bias and that, in my opinion, completely fatuous ideas get celebrated and promoted in the media precisely because they support progressive views about the world. For example, implicit bias or stereotype threat or many others that came out of the social sciences. And, I mean, you can only imagine if you reversed it. And so, like, we had these ideas about abortion guilt and other things that came out of academia. How would liberals feel about that? They would be hysterical. (laughs) So in the interests of fairness and in, in sort of de-escalating the culture wars, I really wish that my colleagues and friends and not friends in academia would scale it back a bit and get some conservatives in there so that people don't feel so alienated from it. And so what I don't understand, and maybe I'm just a weird person here, but I want to know what's true. I don't care. I don't have some political commitment to something that forces me to put data on a Procrustean bed. I really just want to know what's true. And then we can think about the politics of it. And that's what we should be doing. We should be, you know, we have certain values that are not even empirical anyway, like treating people as individuals. It doesn't matter what we find about sex differences or group differences. We treat people as individuals. That's a commitment that has no, there's no empirical fact about the world that would undermine that commitment. And so people shouldn't be worried about that. 
but again, this gets to, we need to teach people that we can separate science, the evidence, the empirical world from our values. And we're not, we're not, not only are we not doing a good job of that, we're actually essentially teaching the opposite right now. Well, I mean, that's, that's, it's hard to know what to say really, but it is very worrying. I think that the picture you paint about the people are, discouraged from certain lines of inquiry or certain areas of academic expertise, even when the data indicates something that basically the fear of a social media mob um, will impact their lives. And actually, as it, I think, as you say, it's, the, it's not necessarily just the person who gets cancelled that is the issue. It's the then the people who look at something and go, you know, that is too much trouble. I've got bills to pay and whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we've covered everything that we sort of wanted to, but I just wonder whether, and to take your views, on whether it's important to protect people from offensive views, and isn't it, in fact, fair that people would want to be protected and to protect others from offensive views? Or versus how important it is to gain insight and understanding from hearing views against, that go against their own, from hearing the views of either side. So, I mean, what's your take on how to strike that balance between protecting people from offensive views or hearing the other side? I uh, personally, I, I'll, I'll try to take this because I have to go in like two minutes. So I'll, I'll get my thoughts and then let Corey... Uh, disagree with me while I can't object <laughs> to her disagreement. <laughs> um, I this will pro- this probably surprises a lot of people, but I'm I'm not really a free speech absolutist. I treat I treat free speech the same way I would treat any other issue, which is it's a complicated, nuanced thing with trade offs. I, I think with academia, though, I treat that as a s- sort of separate domain. Offensive doesn't matter at all. Many of the ideas that people forward will be offensive in academia because they might challenge sacred values about humans. And too bad. If you're in academia, offensive doesn't matter. Again, as long as it's about, you know, if it's a legitimate hypothesis about the empirical world, I'm not talking about, you know, if a professor gets in front of class and starts cursing and insulting students, that's completely different. But in terms of hypotheses, those should just be treated as, you know, are they true or are they not true? That That's all I care about. And in fact, people need to be exposed to quote-unquote offensive ideas that would be contrary ideas, and they need to learn how to grapple with them uh, in a way that's not based on moral valence, but rather based on how likely is it that this is true. Outside of academia, like for, I'll just give you an example, a concrete example. I think that there are IQ differences between human populations, and the, the data are overwhelming on that. And I think probably genes play some role in that. Do I think that a President Joe Biden should talk about that publicly? No, probably not. I don't think that that would be better for society, probably. Do I think you should be able to talk about it in academia? In a, in a domain in which you are attempting to pursue the truth about humans, absolutely. 
So I, I would make differences there. Now, I'm not, you shouldn't be arrested for talking about it in, in public or anything. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying there are different standards and, and I would behave differently in an academic forum than I would at a public dinner, right? Um, and so my, my view is academia, pretty much anything goes outside of it. It's a bit more complicated. I appreciate your having me on here. I have to leave. So thanks a lot. Uh, I hope you continue a good conversation. Great. Thank you so much, Bo. That's fascinating insight. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thanks, Bo. Um, Corey, over to you. I don't feel like you've had the floor <laughs> for a little bit. So, um, I mean, is what what would you like to sort of come in on specifically? Um, I would... Um... I wanted to disagree with him, but I think I mostly do agree with him um, on. I, I guess I, I guess I think people are probably not as fragile as a lot of people think they are. And I also don't think we should encourage people to be more fragile than they would be on their own. Um, I think normal people can handle information with the exception of like, there might be certain kinds of information you wouldn't want to pursue. Like, you know, could we, could we create some kind of disease in humans that could wipe out the whole entire population? Maybe something like that is information you wouldn't want to pursue. But, and, and I find this especially bizarre that I see so much worry in the social sciences about topics we are studying. We're not studying things that are physically dangerous. We're studying people um, and we're trying to get true information about them. What are humans like? Um, and I just think there's almost nothing in the social sciences you can pursue that would be automatically and necessarily so dangerous. We wouldn't want to pursue it. Um, so do people need to be protected from certain ideas? Maybe there are like certain ideas that they should be protected from, but that's not really what scientists are doing. They're really not pursuing ideas that are, that are, that are life threatening to people. Um, so I would, I would say that we can treat adults like adults and, um, you know, trust that they can handle empirical reality. Um, now maybe that's, maybe that's insensitive or something. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I guess I think the burden of proof should have to be on the people trying to censor information. If you want to censor data, then you need to be the one to show that that data is causing tangible harm. And then let's, then we'll think about it. Then we'll talk about, okay, maybe we should censor this information. Um, but that's, that's, I guess, more of an opinion than, um, I think that's a really good sort of proposed criteria, actually, I suppose partly. And I think this applies to both though. I obviously don't want to put words in his mouth when he's not here. Mm -hmm. I think we are talking about slightly different things when we are talking about academia and the pursuit of, knowledge and sort of hypotheses and evidence to prove or disprove certain things that is different from wider sort of general public discourse and mm -hmm. so i think when you're saying almost nothing it or the two of you broadly and correct me if i'm i'm wrong i hope i haven't um sort of mischaracterized you but the, the two of you are basically saying more or less 
within academia, pretty much everything is on the table. There is pretty much nothing off limits because your job as academics is to look at something and go, here is a hypothesis, there is evidence for this. Is that evidence provable within whatever? I'm likely to be able to prove it 110% and definitely causation and all of these things. But you think there is evidence for this, there is evidence against this, and through that sort of scientific method we will come to a conclusion about it. I think, is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? And would you make that difference to wider public discourse? Um, Yeah, saying everything is on the table. That's a very extreme position. (laughs) And I try not to take extreme positions in general. Um, But, yeah, I think that's probably... Sorry? One of the reasons we would welcome, we always welcome you onto this podcast is we're against extreme positions. That, extreme that positions. was a, an oversimplification on my <laughs> part of characterization. Yeah, I mean, I, I the, that's probably fairly close to my to my view. Other than I would say, if you could if you can show that something would be would cause harm, then I would I would I would not want to pursue that. I'm I'm not trying to harm people. If you can show me that pursuing this information would definitely cause more harm than it would help um, in whatever knowledge it generated, um, then I would, I would not pursue it. I just think that's so rarely the case. And I can't really think of an example off the top of my head of a topic that scholars are trying to pursue that would fall into that category. So, so I wouldn't, you know, I would be a little bit more of a utilitarian about, about it. Um, and maybe we could take it by issue. Um, but yeah, I do, I do think that academia is different than the public domain. And as I said before, I, I'm not all that concerned with free speech. It's really free inquiry that I care about and that I want to protect. Um, I don't need people. I don't think people, as Bo said, people should be fired or, um, imprisoned for like saying certain things, although people probably should be fired for saying certain things sometimes. Um, but I don't, I don't think people should go around being nasty being, um, you know, being mean to other people just for the sake of being mean. Uh, so that's not, that's not something I care to defend. Um, really, I just, I, I care about scientists being able to pursue the truth. And I think that throughout history, enabling scientists to pursue truth has made the world a better place for everyone. And that's how we really see progress. So if you want to be the one to say, we have to stall progress here, we can't study this topic, um, then I think the burden of proof is probably on the person trying to to stall that progress to demonstrate why, to demonstrate with with some kind of, evidence that um that topic knowing more about that topic would cause more harm than good when when more knowledge generally has been a good thing for for humans over time well i think that sounds like a fantastic way to to end it and a very sort of strong and positive note that i think is something that we could potentially look at as a where could a centre ground on free speech be? And I think actually myself, that sounds like a very good attempt to find a centre ground to say that all things are um, allowed, but if they are not, then that should be on the basis of someone saying the evidence that we should not be talking about this thing is, you know, it 
this proves that it does this harm. And I think that sounds like a very um, sort of sensible position, personally. So just while we have you on, and we have a couple of minutes left, would you like to, to venture any opinions or predictions about the upcoming US election? <laughs> Not necessarily. Um... I don't want you to, to risk making yourself a sort of hostage to fortune by saying, you know, X will win by so many points. Yeah. But maybe on what basis might the election be decided or sort of what are your sort of more general reflections that you you won't risk saying something now that you wake up in two weeks' time and go, oh, well, <laughs> shouldn't have said that. Yeah, um, I, my, my prediction is that it will be unpleasant. <laughs> my prediction is that the, up until the election, it will be unpleasant, and then after the election, probably it will be unpleasant um, because people just don't behave themselves very well during this time. Um, it just seems like people who are voting for different people can't get along. And I find that sort of puzzling. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't, I hate election season. (laughs) Um, uh, it sort of brings out the worst in people, I think, and it makes everyone more extreme and more, um, more tribal and, um, kind of the very things that I try to push against come out in their most extreme form around election season. So that's really my prediction. My prediction is just, it's going to be unpleasant and I'm, I'll be excited when it's over and we can move on with whatever leader we have and hope that things improve over the next four years, but it doesn't seem like they have been recently. So <laughs> that will maybe be uh, uh, foolishly optimistic. Yeah. Well, I think after the poll, maybe we could balance up and find a sense of ground with a little bit more optimism than he brought to proceedings. So, uh, Corey, thank you so much. That's been a fantastic little, um, well, not so little podcast between, uh, and to have both of you on and discuss some of the, the things between about science and the politicisation of science and how maybe we should all think about the sort of political use of science. Um, I think it's been really good. So thank you so much for your time. Pleasure to have you on as always. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you very much, Steve, for joining me as always. Thanks. And thank you to our listeners. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Goodbye.